Okay, I'm going to let you sit today. It's a long chapter. It's Numbers chapter 13, 1 through 14, 5. Numbers 13, 1 through 14, 5. And if you need a Bible, you can grab a pew Bible, and it's page 86 in your pew Bible. Now, I've read this through a few times, and I've pronounced all the names different every time. So let's see what happens. As long as there's not a Hebrew professor from uh, Midwestern, I think I'll be okay today. So glad you're here. What an honor it is, amen, to read the Word of God and to hear directly from God's Word without error and without and totally truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth in God's Word. Here it is, Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, and all the men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph. That is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamaliel. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vashi. From the tribe of Gad, Geul, the son of Machi. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ayaman, Seshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskel, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him, and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, the cities are fortified, and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amal Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. 
for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Let's pray. Father, how much we can identify with the children of Israel in our difficult times as a congregation, as a people, your people in this nation. It would seem that we are surrounded by giants. It would seem that we are overwhelmed, and yet there is fruitfulness to be had. But, Lord, we must be overcomers. We must learn to replace doubt. We must seek to focus on you, and that's what we're doing here this morning. Take the reading of your word and the preaching of it, combine it with your spirit, Lord, and move in our hearts to see a bigger God than the giants that we may face. Father, we pray that you would anoint and use our pastor, and may we hear from you the word that we need as a people, as individuals, in this day, in this age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Chris, for leading us in our scripture reading through the, one of the more familiar stories of the Old Testament with the children of Israel. I appreciate that very much. Well, can you believe it? Here it is. It's August the 9th, and the royals are still in first place. Pretty cool, right? Hard to believe, and uh, it's pretty amazing. In fact, barring a catastrophe or a collapse of some sort, uh, the Royals are going to make the playoffs, get this, two years in a row. That's amazing. Now, I have to confess, though, I have to confess, I doubted the Royals would make the playoffs last year. And I'll have to admit that in the wild card game last year, when they were losing 3-7 to to the Oakland A's in the seventh inning, I didn't think they would win, but then they tied the game, and then they went into extra innings, but when the A's scored in the top of the 12th inning, again, I have to confess, I thought they were going to lose, and of course we know the Royals scored two runs in the bottom of the 12th inning to win the game 9-8, to and they moved on in the playoffs. But who here really believed the Royals would make it all the way to the World Series? I didn't think anybody did. Chris says, my daughter did, Dad. Yes, I have to confess again. I had a doubting attitude that the Royals would make it to the World Series, and yet they did. Listen, it's one thing to have a doubting attitude when it comes to the Royals. But it's a whole nother thing to have a doubting attitude when it comes to the Christian life. And I think this is one attitude that creeps in our hearts more often than we care to admit. So this morning we're going to take a few minutes here. We're going to take some time to look at replacing a doubting attitude from the example that we saw here of the children of Israel. And what we're going to see is that those who make doubting their lifestyle will spend their lifetime in the wilderness. So what is doubt? Since that's what we're going to be 
focusing on here a little bit this morning. What is doubt? Well, here's a definition of doubt on, in your notes coming up on the screen. Doubt is the absence of faith. I worked on that one for quite a while. Doubt is the absence of faith. It's a lack of assurance or confidence that God will keep His promises. Doubt, in other words, involves a, a settled and persistent choice to live with uncertainty. It's not the the stubborn show-me doubt of Thomas that went looking for answers, but rather we're talking about here the unresolved attitude of Jonah that said, in effect, I don't know and I don't care, I don't believe and nobody can change that. Such doubt, listen to me, is dangerous as Christ followers. It's destructive. It's completely detrimental to any kind of relationship that we have with God. I mean, if you don't have confidence that, that God will do what He said He would do, then what do we have? If we don't have confidence that God will keep His promises, then what are we left with? And God has made hundreds of promises that are recorded in His Scriptures, such as God has promised us His very presence in Deuteronomy 31.6, where it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised to provide for us in Philippians 4.19, where it says, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Jesus Christ. God has promised to protect us even in Isaiah 54.17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And all three of these promises, along with hundreds of others in the Scriptures, are signed and sealed by God Himself. Doubt, though, is a lack of confidence. It's a lack of assurance that God will keep His promises. And when questions about God's willingness or questions about his, his ability to keep His promises persist in our hearts, listen, that attitude then over time becomes a lifestyle. And that lifestyle puts you on a bus to cactus country. It puts you on a bus to living where life seems like a desert wilderness, where there is no joy. Our story here in Numbers 13 takes us back to the children of Israel. And here in this chapter, they were poised between the promised land and the wasteland. And from their experience, we can find here, we can see five principles to show us how God deals with doubt and why it causes life to become like a desert for those who persist in this attitude. So here's the first principle that we see from their example. Number one. God places regular tests of faith before His children. He places regular tests of faith before His children. And these tests of faith, listen to me, they're not intended for our failure. These tests of faith that God places before you and I, they are intended for our success. And similarly, when the children of Israel were at the halfway point in their journey almost ready to enter into the promised land, they faced a challenge before them that was meant for their success. You say, well, what challenge did they face? Well, in this case, the land, the promised land that was before them on the other side of the Jordan River, this land was not vacant. This land was, was filled with other peoples, other nations, and so if they were going to take the land, if they were going to enter the land as God had promised them, as God had commanded them, they were there was going to be war. There was going to be some conflict, some hardship. And so they had a choice that they had to make. They were faced with the choice, will they trust God and conquer the land, or will they doubt God and be defeated? Now in Deuteronomy... Moses tells us what happened as they approached the land. Pointing out that God's number one plan was they would just go up and they would take the land. Just keep on marching. Don't even stop. Go right in and take over. God, in other words, He told them, I've already won this battle for you. Now claim it. 
In fact, God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, He says, Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. In other words, God is saying, don't doubt. You'll win the battles. You will have victory. God will take this land for you. Now go. But of course, most of you are familiar with the story. A lack of faith had their feet paralyzed, and they stayed planted where they were. Later, Moses tells us in, in, here in Deuteronomy chapter 1 in verses 26 and 32, it's, Moses tells the people, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. And that's the bottom line for the people here, the children of Israel, just as it's the bottom line for our lives. The reason they didn't go up and take the land was because of their lack of faith. They failed this test that God had put before them because they doubted God instead of trusting God wholeheartedly. So what's God going to do with his people here? You mean is he just going to cast them off? No, no, he doesn't cast them off. God loves them. And so he gives them another opportunity to trust him. And that's where we are here in Numbers 13. Plan A was just go take it. Plan B was, all right, I know you're weak, but I love you. I'm a God of grace. And and so let's send in some spies, and they'll bring back a good report, and then you'll be fired up with faith to just go get this done. And so what does God do? He tells Moses, send in 12 spies. Go check out the promised land. And so here in Numbers 13, 1 through 3, we find that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. You know what that tells me? These 12 spies that Moses handpicked to send in, they weren't just any guys. These were were the Navy SEALs, if you were. They were the best of the best that the children of Israel had to offer. God told Moses to handpick a 12-man reconnaissance team to go behind enemy lines and to spy out the land. And God was so faithful to provide that opportunity. And so they went to spy out the land. They returned with a scouting report, and then the people would have a choice. They could go up by faith and possess the land, or they could be filled with doubt and go back to the wilderness. In essence, God was giving them an opportunity, and he was saying to them, are you going to trust me, or are you going to doubt me? Now think about this. Think about how often in life, in your life, even in my life, think about how often in life it really comes down to just Am I going to trust God, or am I going to doubt God? It's really a choice that we make, but it's more than a choice. We're expressing an attitude, an attitude of faith or an attitude of doubt. Now, maybe your life has been about doubting for so long that it's kind of hardened into an attitude right now. It's very important that we learn to trust God, to trust His promises, and realize that when we do, when we put one step in front of the other, and take that leap of faith, if you will, when we do that, we can have our own victories. We can experience the victories of God. But if you don't trust God, if you don't trust His promises, listen, we can expect a lot of defeat in life. It's one or the other. It's always one or the other. It's either doubt or it's faith. You will be tested. And the purpose of these tests isn't just to reveal your faith, but one of the purposes God has by placing these regular tests of faith before us is to refine our faith. The reason God refines our faith is because every good thing that God wants to give to us, the blessings of God, listen, they come through the funnel of faith. And so God places these regular tests. They're not always huge tests, but they're tests nonetheless. Some are small, some are bigger. 
Sometimes they come in waves. Sometimes they're spread out. But nonetheless, they are tests. And we have a choice at that moment. Are we going to trust God or am I going to doubt God in this moment, in this circumstance, in this situation? The second principle we see in this story of the children of Israel is that the circumstances of life will either shrink or stretch your faith. Numbers 13 here, in particular, verses 14 through 16, and didn't Chris, by the way, do a wonderful job reading all those names? Praise God. And, and, and so I'm not going to take the time to read them all over again. And you will appreciate that. Verses 14, 4 through 16, though, describes the 12 men who were chosen and sent out. And then in verses 17 through 18, look at this. Moses gave the men their marching orders. He tells them specifically what they're to do. So Moses sent to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way to the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Twelve men, all going to see the same thing. But God wants us here to see how they will see the land. Notice what Moses says in verses 18 through 20. He says, see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So what did the 12 spies see? Well, they saw an awful lot. They saw strong cities. They saw powerful armies. They saw impressive giants. But they also saw evidence of milk and honey. They saw evidence of what God had been telling them all along, that it was a land of promise. It was a land of abundance. But the question is, how did they see it? Did they see it through eyes of faith, or did they see it through eyes of doubt? Well, fast forward 40 years later, when Moses reviewed these events, he pointed out what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. Listen to what it says. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Question, how does a man carry his son? Those of you that have children, whether a son or a daughter, if your son or daughter were to fall and break his leg, how do you pick up your son or daughter and carry him? You would do so with great love, with great tenderness, with great care, would you not? Man, this is something I know firsthand. When Jack broke his leg as a six-year-old, we were sledding, going downhill, and uh, make a long story short, he ended up breaking his leg because he and I collided with each other. And he just snapped that bone right here, both of them, just right in half. And here he was on the side of a hill in snow. And uh, in fact, he flipped upside down completely and broke that leg and let out a bloody scream. His mother then let out a bloody scream. And I raced down there, and we tended to him. And I picked him up in my arms tenderly, lovingly, and carefully and carried him into the house. Yes. Yes. I don't remember saying that. I don't, I don't remember that, Jack. You're blowing the illustration here, son. But how did the spies, how did the spies respond to God's promise here. Well, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 1, verse 32, 
he says, in spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. So the things the spies saw would either shrink their faith or it would stretch their faith. And I wonder, can you identify right now, at this very moment, can you identify what might be going on in your life that's either shrinking your faith or it is stretching your faith? Well, as we've already learned, God places these, these regular tests of faith in front of us. I'm sure He has for you. Many, many times, multiple times. And when God does, we either get closer to Him and we grow in our faith, or we, we back away from Him. We get further away from Him and we, are, we become filled with doubt. Man, I, again, I, 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 all of us have stories about this. I faced this just two years ago. In just one incident, as most of you know, I was uh, diagnosed with a with what's called a gist tumor in my stomach. And it was cancerous, and it was the size of a racquetball, and had no idea I had it, and they really, a God thing, of diagnosing it, finding it, and it had to be taken out. And fortunately, for my, in my case, uh, this, this, this cancer was self-contained in this tumor, and so it had not spread yet. It was a non-aggressive type cancer. They were able to uh, take out the tumor out of, in my stomach, and there was no evidence of it spreading anywhere. And so I was very fortunate in that way. I know very well, though, as I went through that process, that God could have chosen a very different outcome. The stretching of my faith could have gone a very different way. Either way, though, God places regular test of faith in front of us. And I'm sure many of you here this morning, you can, you're not even picturing in your mind those tests of faith, what you are going through now. And in those critical moments, you make a crucial choice. Either you let your faith grow and flourish, or you choose to doubt. Listen, the circumstances of life either shrink or stretch your faith. Either you get better because of it, or we end up getting bitter. Think about the hardest thing that's going on in your life right now. And ask yourself the question, is this circumstance, is this problem, is this situation, is it stretching my faith or is it shrinking my faith? The third principle we see in this story of the children of Israel is that doubt sees the obstacles, but faith sees the opportunities. Isn't it ironic how two people can look at the same situation and see the exact opposite. One heart filled with doubt focuses on the obstacles, while the other person looking at the very same situation filled with faith sees all the opportunities. So what do the 12 spies see? Well, what kind of report did they bring back? Notice what it says here in Numbers 13, verses 25 through 26. Look at it with me. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And so they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. Now, imagine with me. Imagine the anticipation as the people saw the spies coming back from their 40 days their 40-day journey of spying out the land. They must have been so excited as they saw them coming back, at least the people who were full of faith. And fortunately, everybody wasn't quite seeing it the same way. Not even the 12 spies. Look what it says, continuing in verses 26 and 27. It says, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And then they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They even showed him evidence of it. But notice what happens next. And this is where the whole story turns for the worst. Up until this moment, they were tracking with God. They're going in the right direction. But it turns for the worse at this moment. In verse 28, the majority spokesperson opened up his mouth and said this awful word. 
And in the New King James Version, it's nevertheless. That word literally means except that. In other words, this guy is saying, yes, we went into the land, and yes, it does flow with milk and honey. In fact, look at the size of these grapes. Nevertheless. And then the report got really negative. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the opportunities. Notice in verse 28, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Nevertheless, the cities are fortified and very large. Nevertheless, moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. In verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and all along the banks of the Jordan. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the doubt of these spies? They listed all the armies. They talked about all the fortified cities, and then they focused on the giants. Because they had, nevertheless... It was on the tip of their tongues. It was in their heart. It was all written on their life. God promised. God's power, nevertheless. And it changed everything. The doubt of the ten spies. Look at this in your notes. Look at this. The problem was never. Get this. Get this. The problem here in this story was never the armies. The problem was never the fortified cities. The problem was never the size of the giants. The problem was their attitude, evidenced by this one word, nevertheless. They doubted that God would keep his promises. But not everyone doubted, did they? Oh, there were two who didn't. Some of you know those names. Caleb and Joshua, two men who were filled with faith. They had confidence that God would keep his promises. Look what it says in verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why in the world did Caleb have to quiet the people down? That's, that is interesting. Remember, it's two million people plus in this camp. And right now, he's having to quiet them down. They are in an uproar. In other words, they were, as we learned in the very beginning of the series, they were murmuring. They were freaking out with doubt, if you will. And they were causing an uproar with fear. So Caleb has to stand up before them, and before he can even utter a word, he has to quiet them down. He has to get their attention. He has to settle them. And then he says in verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people of Moses and said, Hey, hey, listen, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Whoa, what great faith. But then there was this doubting response that ultimately sent the children of Israel back into the wilderness to die. We see it in verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, Well, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Folks, that is the saddest commentary you can read in this chapter about the lack of faith in God on behalf of the children of Israel. And here's the double whammy. Here's the double whammy about this. You see, their doubt... It not only impacted how they saw God, just as our doubt not only impacts how we see God, but it also, our doubt, this attitude, it impacts how we see life all around us, and even it impacts how we see ourselves. Notice their final analysis. Look at it in verse 32 and 33. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, 
came from the giants. And we, here's how it impacts them, how they view themselves, and we were like what? Grasshoppers in our own sight. And notice the last phrase. And so we were in their sight. Remember, faith sees what? The opportunities. Doubt sees the obstacles. In other words, what you see is what you get. Listen, if all we do is look at the obstacles that we're facing, is it not easy to conclude that we are overmatched and there's no hope? And humanly speaking, that may be an accurate assessment of our reality. I mean, who here, who here hasn't felt like a grasshopper surrounded by giants on all sides? Right? Who here, when you look, from a human standpoint, when you look at what we face in this world, when you look at what you're facing right now, who here doesn't feel like a grasshopper? Man, I'll be the first to raise my hand. I'll be the first to admit, in this last month, three robberies, three vandalisms in six weeks on these eight air conditioners outside, it's been one headache and one problem after another this summer with that. Had to put all these security cages around him, $10,000 cost. You, and then the, and that's, just, that's just the start of the cost. We've, it seems like we've had one issue after another of maintenance here around the church on ACs and what. Just, in fact, right before I went to vac on vacation, the Sunday before, uh, the AC wasn't working next door. The blower went out. $740. I'm like, Lord, is, is what's outside not enough? Now it's inside here? Lord, what's going on? And let me tell you, in, in, when you look at all that, you can begin to feel like a grasshopper. I'm overmatched. When I begin to assess the reality of it from a human perspective. Oh, it's easy, is it not? To feel overwhelmed, to see no hope. Humanly speaking, our lives are full of impossible challenges. On our own, can we really persevere in a difficult relationship or conquer a personal sin or bring our neighbor to faith in Christ? On our own, can we? No, none of us can on our own. However, listen, eyes of faith recognize that in this world, reality is not accurately measured until we focus on God. And until we zoom in on his promises. Listen, this is God's world. This is God's world in which his word and his promises ultimately prevail. And so like Caleb and Joshua, focus on God and see your reality with eyes of faith. But this is often easier said than done, is it not? Which brings us to our fourth principle. Look at number four. When surrounded by doubters, doubting comes so easily. What a night of victory that could have been after those spies returned back to camp. The people should have been whooping it up. Man, they should have been celebrating like we were after the Royals won that wild card game against the A's. I mean, through the month of October, this city was on fire. That's, you went to work, and what is it? People whooping it up. In your neighborhoods, people whooping it up. You go to the grocery store. I went to, I mean, after that wild card game, I went to Rally House to kind of buy some Royals gear because I had to get in on the bandwagon, you know, like it, most people, all of Kansas City. I'm telling you what, you would have thought it was Christmas time at Rally House. People were cheering and whooping it up. This is what should have been going on with the children of Israel right here. Hey, we're going in and we're taking the land. They should have been rejoicing. This is going to be the greatest thing in the whole world. We're going to take the land that God has promised to give us. They should have been reminding each other. Hey, do you remember the plagues back in Egypt? Hey, do you remember what God did to Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea? Just, man, can you imagine what God's going to do for us now? That should have been the talk. They should have been going crazy with confidence in God because of all that they had seen God do in the past. But they weren't. Why? 
Because when surrounded by doubters, doubting comes easily. Look at how the people responded in chapter 14, verse 1 here. It says, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Now that's enough to make even me cry right now. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 2 says, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. If only we had died in this wilderness. Are you kidding me? After all God's done for them, after seeing God's power in the plagues in the Red Sea, and now they wish they had died in the wilderness? Are you serious? And notice that this wasn't the attitude of just a few doubtful people. Did you notice how it's described? It says all the congregation in verse 1 and all the children of Israel in verse 2. Why? Because when you're surrounded by doubters, doubting comes easily. Have you ever wondered to yourself, man, why do I find it so hard to trust God? God's been so faithful to me. God's provided for me. He's done a lot of good things in my life. So why, why am I struggling with doubt in this particular situation? Well, I think one reason is this. Instead of talking often about God's goodness and grace in our lives, instead of meditating on his goodness, instead of thinking about all that God has done for us, people choose to focus on the obstacles. And in doing so, we welcome doubt into our hearts. And once you get that wave going in a group, oh man, everybody rides it. Everybody hops on board. Doubting comes easily if all the people that you hang out with if all the people that you interact with on a, on a weekly basis, especially on social media, are people who are not committed to Jesus Christ and are not living by faith in God. Listen, the principle really is true. When you are surrounded in your life by doubters, doubting comes easily. Let's be honest. Doubting is contagious, is it not? It's easier to catch than the common cold. Doubting is also passive. Nobody wakes up in the morning, at least I haven't met anybody like this. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I bet today's going to be a great day for doubting. I'm just going to doubt God all day long and see how my day goes at the end. No, nobody wakes up that way. Doubting is passive. Doubting is what takes over you when you do nothing. When you're not growing in your relationship with the Lord. And so, get this, faith requires growing. In fact, later on in the New Testament, the disciples of Jesus Christ asked Jesus himself in Luke chapter 17, 5, they, they pleaded with him, Lord, increase our faith. And so faith requires growing. And I just want to throw out to you, a great place to grow your faith is in our discovery hour and in our grow groups. And I know many of you attend our, our discovery hour, but perhaps there's some of you out here that do not. Let me encourage you, man, come an hour earlier. Come at 9.30 and get involved in one of our, our discovery hour classes where we go deeper into God's Word and discover what it says, His promises and the truths. And let it grow your faith in your faith to flourish. And another place is in our grow groups. You know, we're getting ready to have our sign-ups here this month and in the coming weeks, and our grow groups will start up on September 13th. Let me encourage you, if you haven't already, or maybe you have, and you backed off, get plugged into a grow group. We need encouragement from friends of faith, not friends of doubt, to grow in our faith and to trust God when he puts those tests of faith before us. And let me tell you, from my own personal experience, that is one of the benefits of being part of a grow group. It's awesome. And so let me encourage you, continue on if you already are, or start if you haven't already. One reason we need to grow in our faith is because doubt never stands still. It's always sliding somewhere worse. 
Which brings us to the last principle. It's a short journey from doubt to despair. And in some cases, it's not weeks nor months. It's just a matter of a few days. And in the case of the children of Israel here in Numbers 13, it was just a matter of a few days. Notice again what started to come forth from their lips in Numbers 14 in verse 2. It says, the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, if only we had died in this wilderness. They didn't know it yet, but God was going to give them their wish sooner than later. And then they said these tragic words in verses 3 and 4. It says, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? Think about that. Is that really why God brought them to the promised land? Was that really, is that what God said to them? Do you, do you see the foolishness in this? The twistedness of this? The logic or the lack thereof? that our wives and our children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, hey, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. In essence, they were saying, we're going back to Egypt. God's not going to give us any victories. We're going to be killed, and our wives and our children will be killed. We're better off as slaves in Egypt. So let's get a new leader who will understand our plight and take us back. Folks, listen to that. That was like spitting in the face of God in all of his faithfulness to them. Is that messed up or what? I mean, talk about a bad plan, and here's why. First, it was totally contrary to their experiences of the past, was it not? They had forgotten all of God's provisions. They forgot about the parting of the Red Sea. They had forgotten about the pillar of cloud by day, the fire, the pillar of fire by night. They had forgot about the daily provision of manna, and on and on we could go. Had not God provided for them every step of the way? Yes. Second, if they did turn around and go back to Egypt, do you think God would continue to provide for them? Do you think God was still going to rain down manna from heaven, going back in disobedience? I don't think so. Third, what if by some chance they did happen to make it back to Egypt? What then? Do you think Pharaoh is just going to welcome them back with open arms? After all those plagues, after his army had drowned in the Red Sea, are they just going to walk back to Egypt and say, Oh, Pharaoh, sorry about all that. We want to make up now. I don't think so. But here's the main reason this was a bad plan. It rose from desperation. Look at this in your notes. Desperate plans come from despairing hearts. You can write in the margin of your Bibles there beside verses 3 and 4, the word desperate. I've heard some pretty desperate plans from people over the years. I'm sure you have as well. And I just want to say to them, you're going to do what? I don't say it, but I surely think it. I, as they, they tell me the plans, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. There's, there's no rhyme or logic to this. This is coming forth out of a desperate heart. The children of Israel made some pretty desperate plans all because their doubt had ballooned into despair. Remember, it's a very short journey from doubt to despair. Now, I want to close with this thought. This thought when it comes to doubting God versus trusting God. I'm 48 years old now. Some of you thought I was 38, I know. I, I just got word this morning that my dad made a comment yesterday. The comment as I'm standing here performing this wedding. He leans over to my wife and says, man, he looks older up there. Like, what's, what's up with that? Listen, I'm 48 years old now, and I can honestly say I have never, ever trusted God and regretted it. 
Sometimes the challenges and tests of faith have been huge. Sometimes others have been just daily choices to trust God and to keep on following Jesus, to, to what you would say persevere, to just plug along. And I have never regretted once those choices to trust God and his promises. But I can think of times, more times than I care to admit, when I have chosen doubt and looked back and later regretted it. Because I know, you know what? I missed opportunities to prove the faithfulness of God in my life. Now, I don't know about you, but today, I personally need more faith than ever. I need to trust God more than I ever have. I have a wife, and I'm thankful that we've been married for 24 years, almost 25 now. I have two boys who are now teenagers, one who's going to be a senior in high school and graduate. We, we were driving yesterday, and, I, and Tyler was with me and said, Tyler, can you believe this is your last year of high school? And then my youngest is a 13-year-old who will be a freshman, not this year, but the following year. Man, I, I, need, I need faith. I need grace. And plus now, my role is I'm the pastor of this church, of you all. And like you, I'm trying to follow Jesus in my own personal life in a world that is increasingly hostile towards Jesus Christ. And it is not always easy, is it? And I'm sure you could come up with your own list of where you need more faith, to trust God more. Listen, the reality is we all have so much going on in our lives in which we need to trust God for, do we not? Let me encourage you. You will never regret choosing faith over doubt. The rewards for choosing faith are great. The consequences of choosing doubt are destructive, horrific. Listen, our God is worthy to be trusted. He's proven that in the past. He proves it in the present, and he will prove it again in the future. What will you choose this morning? with your heads bowed. And as we come to our response time, listen, I'm sure there are many of you here that can go to the Lord in prayer. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. And perhaps the first thing you need to do is to confess to God the sin of doubt and to ask Him to forgive you for doubting Him and doubting His promises and not choosing faith. Listen, Go to him, confess it, and receive his forgiveness, and then ask him to increase your faith. Ask him to give you the grace to take that next step in whatever situation you're facing right now. As the praise team sings, let me encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer.